Hello, and welcome to A Course in Miracles for Regular People. I'm your host, Reverend Robin. In this podcast, we read and discuss the text of A Course in Miracles. I also have another podcast that is reading and discussing the daily workbook lessons. That one is called A Course in Miracles Daily Workbook Lessons for Regular People. I love talking with people about A Course in Miracles and the daily lessons, and I welcome interaction and feedback. There are several ways you can reach out to me if you'd like to chat. I'm on Twitter at ACIMFOR. I have a Facebook page called A Course in Miracles for Regular People. You can email me at ACIMFRP, that's A Course in Miracles for Regular People, ACIMFRP at gmail.com. Or you can simply go to anchor.fm and leave me a voice message. Actually, you can also make donations on Anchor if you'd like to support this podcast, and I really appreciate that. Now let's get started with today's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 59. This is the first episode in chapter 3, The Innocent Perception. Section 1, Atonement Without Sacrifice. Atonement Without Sacrifice. A further point must be perfectly clear before any residual fear still associated with miracles can disappear. You know, that, that still always surprises me. I guess I would have a different view if I lost an arm in an accident and then regrew a new one. But it doesn't seem to me like miracles are scary. But I do remember that somewhere in the Bible, in one of the Gospels, Jesus was doing miracles somewhere, and the people freaked out and told him to leave. So I guess there can be fear associated with miracles. So a further point must be perfectly clear before any residual fear still associated with miracles can disappear. The crucifixion did not establish the the atonement. The resurrection did. I love that statement. That is so powerful. Um, I don't remember whether it's somewhere else in the text or a lesson, but I I know somewhere it said, What good is a dead Christ? The death is not what accomplished anything. If Jesus just died and never resurrected, what would be the point? It's the resurrection that established the atonement. Many sincere Christians have misunderstood this. No one who was free of the belief in scarcity could possibly make this mistake. So the idea that the crucifixion established the atonement stems from an idea of scarcity, a belief in scarcity. If the crucifixion is seen from an upside-down point of view, it does appear as if God permitted and even encouraged one of his sons to suffer because he was good. This particularly unfortunate interpretation, which arose out of projection, has led many people to be bitterly afraid of God. Wow, if this God is 
willing to kill his own son. I mean, it's one thing to kill the other nations and stuff that are against your people, but to kill your own son. It, it's frightening for, for me to, to say to someone, I love you enough that I will kill my son. I, I don't know what kind of a person kills their own child. In physical reality, they would be arrested and condemned and maybe put on death row. Continuing here, such anti-religious concepts enter into many religions, yet the real Christian should pause and ask, how could this be? Is it likely that God himself would be capable of the kind of thinking which his own words have clearly stated is unworthy of his son? In the Ten Commandments, God said, Thou shalt not kill. Continuing, this is the second paragraph of the first section. The best defense, as always, is not to attack another's position, but rather to protect the truth. It is unwise to accept any concept if you have to invert a whole frame of reference in order to justify it. This procedure is painful in its minor applications and genuinely tragic on a wider scale. Persecution frequently, frequently results in an attempt to justify the terrible misperception that God himself persecuted his own son on behalf of salvation. One of the things that confuses and frustrates me concerning the whole persecution thing <clears throat> is that many Christians hold the idea that to be persecuted is a badge of honor. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. On the one hand, they're claiming the scripture, um, I think it's in one of the Psalms, or it might be in Jeremiah, I don't remember, but it says, no, it's a Psalm. It says, no weapon formed against you will prosper, and any voice that rises against you in judgment I will show to be in the wrong. And people run around quoting that scripture, no weapon formed against me will prosper, but then they say things like, well, if they wouldn't take off my head, well, I don't care, just get me to heaven faster. Well, those two things don't mesh. If no weapon formed against you will prosper, they're not going to be able to take off your head. So the idea that persecution is a badge of honor and that God wants you to be persecuted the way he persecuted his own son, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Continuing, the very words are meaningless. Let's see, the, um, so persecution frequently results in an attempt to justify the terrible misperception that God himself persecuted his own son on behalf of salvation. The very words are meaningless. It has been particularly difficult to overcome this because although the error itself is no harder to correct than any other, many have been unwilling to give it up in view of its prominent value as a defense. 
In milder forms, a parent says, this hurts me more than it hurts you, and feels exonerating in beating a child. Can you believe our father really thinks this way? It is so essential that all such thinking be dispelled, that we must be sure that nothing of this kind remains in your mind. I was not punished because you were bad. The holy benign lesson that the atonement teaches is lost if it is tainted with this kind of distortion in any form. The statement, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, is a misperception by which one assigns his own evil past to God. It's like we, we experience something that we want to take revenge on or get some sort of quote-unquote justice. That person did that. That's a felony. They belong in jail. And we want vengeance. So that statement, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, is a misperception by which we assign our own evil past to God. If I feel this way, then God would feel this way. God would want to protect me, so God would say, vengeance is mine. But the evil past has nothing to do with God. He did not create it, and he does not maintain it. God does not believe in retribution. His mind does not create that way. He does not hold on to your... He does not hold your evil deeds against you. Is it likely that he would hold them against me? Be very sure that you recognize how utterly impossible this assumption is and how entirely it arises from projection. This kind of error is responsible for a host of related errors, including the belief that God rejected Adam and forced him out of the Garden of Eden. God did not reject Adam. If you go and you read that story, as if reading it for the first time, never heard it before, never had any teaching on it before, just read the story. And what you see is that Adam separated himself from God through fear. When God came walking in the garden, Adam was afraid. He separated himself. He hid himself then God did not kick Adam out of the garden. God said, you know, if he eats from the tree of life in this condition, there will be no way to bring him back into unity with me. So God sent him away. He didn't kick him out because he was angry that Adam sinned. He wanted to hang on to, he wanted to keep the connection. He wanted the possibility of reconnection. So continuing, it is also why you may believe from time to time that I am misdirecting you. Okay, the belief that God rejected Adam is also why you may believe from time to time that I am misdirecting you. I have made every effort to use words that are almost impossible to distort but it's always possible to twist symbols around if you wish. Sacrifice is a notion totally unknown to God. It arises solely from fear, and frightened people can be vicious. It's like 
I don't know if it still happens, but I've seen in movies ancient cultures who live in the jungle. They always want to, you know, sacrifice the beautiful virgin to appease the gods. And they take this beautiful virgin and they throw her in a volcano to appease the gods. So hopefully there will be enough rain and disease will stay away and there won't be any floods. Sacrifice is an, a notion totally unknown to God. It arises solely from fear. Those people were afraid of drought. They were afraid of floods. They were afraid of disease. And it says frightened people can be vicious. If they think that sacrificing one of their beautiful virgins will protect them from the wrath of the gods, then they'll do it because they're frightened. So continuing. Sacrificing in any way is a violation of my injunction that you should be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful. And that's from Luke 6.36. Be merciful as your God in heaven is merciful. And if God in heaven is going to kill his son to benefit someone else, then that's what I should do? It just doesn't make sense. It has been hard for many Christians to realize that this applies to themselves. Good teachers never terrorize their students. To terrorize is to attack, and this results in rejection of what the teacher offers. The result is learning failure. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I have been correctly referred to as the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. But those who represent the Lamb as, a blood stain, as blood stained do not understand the meaning of the symbol. Correctly understood. It is a very simple symbol that speaks of my innocence. The lion and the lamb lying down together symbolize that strength and innocence are not in conflict. But they naturally live in peace. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, is another way of saying the same thing. A pure mind knows the truth, and this is its strength. This is the strength of the pure mind, the truth that the pure in heart shall see God. It does not confuse destruction with innocence because it associates innocence with strength and not weakness. The pure in heart shall see God because they recognize the purity of God. They are one with God. Innocence is incapable of sacrificing anything because the innocent mind has everything and strives only to protect its wholeness. It cannot project. It can only honor other minds because honor is the natural greeting of the truth, of the truly loved to others who are like them. The lamb taketh away the sins of the world in the sense that the state of innocence or grace is one in which the meaning of the atonement is perfectly apparent. The atonement is entirely unambiguous. It is perfectly clear because it exists in light. There's no confusion about the atonement. It's oneness with God. And we can see that because it's in the true light of real vision. 
Only the attempts to shroud it in darkness have made it inaccessible to those who do not choose to see. So much, we, we as humans, so many times take things and overcomplicate them. Overthinking things and making it more difficult than it needs to be. So continuing, the atonement itself radiates nothing but truth. It therefore epitomizes harmlessness and sheds only blessing. It could not do this if it arose from anything but perfect innocence. Innocence is wisdom because it is unaware of evil, and evil does not exist. Yes, innocence is wisdom because it is unaware of evil, and it is unaware of evil because evil does not exist. It is, however, perfectly aware of everything that is true. The resurrection demonstrated that nothing can destroy truth. God can withstand any form of evil, as light abolishes forms of darkness. The atonement is therefore the perfect lesson. It is the final demonstration that all the other lessons I taught are true. I like to say no one could do anything to Jesus without his consent. They couldn't beat him without his consent. They couldn't nail him to the cross without his consent. They couldn't have arrested him without his consent. And he consented to all those things for the purpose of showing us that death is not real. Death is not real. They couldn't, they couldn't crucify Jesus without his consent. They couldn't kill the body that Jesus was living in without his consent. So he let them do it. And then he rose himself from the dead or created a new body or however he did it. So that we would see that death is not real. Continuing here, if you can accept this one generalization now that the atonement is the perfect lesson, there will be no need to learn from many smaller lessons. You are released from all errors if you believe this. So if we believe that the atonement is the perfect lesson, then we are released from all these other errors. The innocence of God is the true state of the mind of his son, in this state, your mind knows God, for God is not symbolic. It says he is fact. And that surprises me when I read that, because, because the way that I have come to see it is that fact is physical and truth is transcendent. And what I mean by that is that facts can change. The fact is that on the day that I'm recording this episode, it is April 17th, the year 2021. Tomorrow, the fact will be that it is April 18th. And facts change. The fact is that right now, I'm sitting in my living room and outside is a beautiful sunny day. But tomorrow, the fact may be that I'm sitting in my den and it's a cloudy day. We'll see. But facts change, so that surprises me that 
I guess what it means is that God is real, not symbolic. So, be that as it may, let's continue. Knowing his son as he is, you realize that the atonement, not sacrifice, is the only appropriate gift for God's altar, where nothing except perfection belongs. The understanding of the innocent is truth. That is why their altars are truly radiant. The altar, God's altar, in us is our mind, our true mind, our healed mind, our mind that is one with God. One with God. We think God's thoughts. We think with God's mind. We are one with God. God is one with us. Wow, I think that that is a really powerful section. And there didn't seem to be any place to really stop and pick up in another episode. So this episode was a little bit longer. I, I think it was worth the extra time that we took with it. Today I have four takeaways from this episode. The first one is the crucifixion didn't establish the atonement, the resurrection did. The second one is Jesus was not punished because we were bad. It said that God doesn't hold our quote-unquote evil against us. Is it logical that he would hold it against Jesus? God doesn't think that way. Number three, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world When that statement is correctly understood, it's a symbol that speaks of innocence. The lion and the lamb lying down together symbolize that strength and innocence are not in conflict, but that they exist in peace. And number four, a pure mind knows the truth, and that is its strength. Innocence does not equate with weakness, it equates with strength. This week, I wish you a week of innocence. Many blessings. Namaste.